In the park along the waterfront that I've been going to every day, I have two favorite sculptures. The first has the forms of two ancient kings, side by side, King Asa and King Yehoshabad. Carved out of stone, one sits, the other stands. They're clearly from the past. But with their arms folded and looking off into the distance across the sea, they both seem proud of the present and hopeful of the future. The second piece of art is a steel-winged sculpture, 120 feet up in the air, a plane that looks like a bird, or a bird that looks like a plane. It's a memorial to two pilots shot down during the War of Independence, defending a new country attacking its harbor. There's a sadness to it, of course, but with it up so high and soaring, it's another statement of pride. Where is this, you wonder? As you can probably guess, I'm not at Claremont along the river where I usually rave about the views and walk with Nora. I'm not at Poet's Walk, one of our favorite hikes in Red Hook. Nope. I'm on a promenade over the Mediterranean at its very eastern shore in Tel Aviv, Israel, 5,600 miles from home in the Hudson Valley. This is an incredible place. They say the definition of the phrase God's country is a beautiful area, often rural, favored by a higher power. In music and books, God's country is often farmland in the south, or frontier in the, south, in the west, or just really far away. And as you've heard me describe so many times there, the Hudson Valley can feel just like that. For five weeks, though, we've been living here in the Middle East. Brian and I took an apartment in Tel Aviv near the beach, and I've traveled to Jerusalem, to Bethlehem, to Petra in Jordan, and to Beersheba this past week to see the Ramon Crater, which incidentally is not a crater. God's country? I'm literally there. I'm Matt Zucker, and this is Sidiot, learning to live and love life in the Hudson Valley. Welcome to season three, if you can believe it, and episode 31, God's Country. The positive connotations of this phrase are usually a beautiful rural area and a place you want to get back to. Some definitions also say it's an inconvenient location. The Urban Dictionary is more negative and critical. Land so far out, it says, in the middle of nowhere that even the most basic artifacts of civilization are hard to come by. The associated hashtags are middle of nowhere, vast dirt ocean, flyover states, farming, hick, as Krakistan, and bumfuck. Obviously, I find a few of those semi-offensive, since if I'd learned anything in the last five years, and hopefully you the last 30 episodes, is that middle of nowhere can very much be at the center of the universe, where people come together, where we first started, where food is still made. As idiots, of course, we must learn to adapt. For example, I'm learning to like country music. Blake Shelton from NBC's The Voice, who apparently also makes music, has a recent hit single, God's Country. I've listened to it like a hundred times. You can feel the resilience in his voice and in the lyrics. One analysis I read said Shelton portrays the country as a challenging place to live, people working by the sweat of their brow. But even though he owns the land he talks about, he doesn't consider himself the actual owner. Until the end of January, Brian and I are on my sabbatical from work. You can see photos on Instagram if you search for hashtag matabatical. You'll see us along the beach, at food markets, out to dinner with local friends, at the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, at the Wall Wall in Bethlehem, exploring Petra, plus selfies with visitors like my mom's sister and her friend Lisa, who all came over to visit. But even if we travel halfway around the world to what seems like another world, you can't take the boys of the Hudson Valley or the Hudson Valley out of the boys. 
On Facebook, in one of our community groups, one morning, a man posted, if anyone was missing any goats. It made me homesick. Being a city is all about acclimation. Here are nine things that I find incredibly different but similar between living in the country and living in another country like Israel. Number one, immersion has been easier for us here than it was for us there. Being in a modern urban environment like Tel Aviv is something we gave up when we gave up the city apartment. So the biggest adjustments are fun. Walking around a real pedestrian city, stopping in local cafes, seeing street theater or graffiti, grabbing a taxi when we get tired, and the need to make dinner reservations in advance. Bad weather upstate can cripple your activity. Here, it just affects beach time. Yeah, we got soft again quickly. Number two, city life is also about paying attention to your safety. In Tel Aviv, this has many layers. Familiar ones to New York City are like getting run over by a car, bus, or bike. Here they also have three brands of speed scooters, which whip around curves, and not everyone wears helmets. Of course, in the background, there's that larger safety concern. Our rental apartment briefing included where to go if, say, air sirens go off. The whole region is a tinderbox. Any loud sound puts us all on edge. In the Hudson Valley, a boom, and I think of lightning, thunder, or hunters in November. Here, it's boom, and you pray it's not an IED balloon or a rocket. Number three, the food. As planned, we have been eating well. Brian eats shakshuka or falafel or hummus every single day. My food allergies limit me a bit, especially since everything here is nuts, almonds, sesames, or chestnuts. But I've missed out on far less than I thought I would. More than like half the restaurants and cafes I've been to either have a gluten-free option or they know what the heck I'm talking about. There's fresh produce everywhere, and you know it's farm-to-table since basically every farm is within two hours. There's the famous Israeli breakfast, which is plates and plates and plates of spreads and things, mostly organized around an egg dish. The colorful Israeli salad is chopped tomato, cucumber, and onion with olive oil. Jordan has its own, with the exact same ingredients, but they're sliced instead of chopped. For sweets, the big thing is halva, a sesame and honey concoction, which I can't eat, but my sister accidentally brought... Uh, three bricks of in the Carmel Shuk. What Israel has that the Hudson Valley doesn't is a lot of fresh fish everywhere, every day, anytime for the cheap. The Hudson is not the med. Number four on my list of similarities and differences is the ubiquity of animals. Animals are everywhere. And like in the Hudson Valley, they have the right of way. We see dogs and cats everywhere across Tel Aviv. And as we drive around the country or even into Jordan, we can see sheeps and camels. And at Petra, Brian and I both rode mules all across the park to climb the hills, up and down the steep steps, all the way to the monastery in the far end of the park. One difference, though, is the presence of pigs. Pork is famously not kosher for Jews or Muslims. This is one thing everyone agrees on. So you won't see much of it on menus or on farms. Though we saw bacon a few times in a few places, so we asked, and we learned of just a few farms in Israel where they seem to raise pigs on wooden planks that never touch the ground. In this sensitive environment, there's a code word for pork, short cattle. Number five, gestures. I find myself doing the country wave at strangers, and the Israelis look back at me like I'm ridiculous. The wave back is both hands up in the air saying, Maza, what the fuck? They have other gestures, though, like the hand upside down with the fingers pressed together. That means rega, or wait, wait a second in English. 
My other favor is when you try to hail a taxi, since no one in the Middle East can actually seem to adhere to the straightforward lights on the taxi is available convention that we all know elsewhere. And you can't see into the back seat. So what you get back is a single finger wagging no-no at you, like you did something bad. No soup for you. This really gets my hair up. It's bad customer service when the meaning is actually far more innocent. This finger wag, no-no, means I am simply not available for you at this current time. Why they can't just say that, I don't know. Number six, diversity. Not sure how to describe this. There's a certain, you know, variety of peoples for sure here, ethnicities and national origin. I mean, waves of immigration from Europe, Russia, Ukraine, Africa, America, and elsewhere in the Middle East. Plus, Jews and Arabs displaced during wars and land grabs from their original towns. But diversity here doesn't seem to mean people are actually mixed within the towns and integration the way we know it. There seems to be instead a variety of homogenous communities, but living within just a few miles of each other. Street signs in Israel are in Hebrew, Arabic, and English. One group I'm trying to learn more about are Bedouins, mostly Arab nomads who herd their flocks and are throughout the Middle East, including Israel and Jordan. In Petra, our guide who owned the mules that we were riding was Mohammed, very handsome, who told us he was a Bedouin. And as we trotted around the park, he pointed at the caves and said he used to sleep there as a kid. Upstate, admittedly, we lack diversity. Some days I feel like there are basically three groups, mostly white. One, people here since the Mayflower with their names on street signs. Number two, the Weekenders. And three, everyone else. I'll be back in a bit with three more, including the, the inevitable topics like war and religion. You can't really do the Middle East or Israel justice without, without touching on the presence of war. Paris, I always notice, has streets named after artists or military generals. Here it goes much further. War memory, both ancient and recent, is everywhere. Every day we walk past those two favorite statues I mentioned earlier, overlooking the beach of King Asa of Judah and King Yehoshavat of Israel, looking out at sea. And that metal flight sculpture was put up for two pilots shot down during the 1948 War of Independence, saving the port of Tel Aviv from Egyptian ships bombing when Arab nations all attacked in dispute of the UN decree. Our second week, we went to Bethlehem and stayed in Banksy's Waldorf Hotel for a different view of life here, especially from the Palestinian point of view. We went on a tour of the art of the wall itself. It's harrowing and heartbreaking. And in the presence of giant guard towers, checkpoints, loudspeakers, and barbed wire, incredibly uncomfortable. As Americans, we get to move about freely. The only seeming obstacles are figuring out which line to get on and what to do with all the little pieces of paper they give you through going through checkpoints. We see soldiers everywhere, very, very young people, men and women. Reminds me a little of post-9-11 in New York, except here. Everyone isn't just on guard. They're all guards. The U.S. does military memory, too, but it's really in the small towns like in the Hudson Valley that, at least to me, it feels more intimate. The names on the memorials are often as familiar as the families still in the community. Okay, now number eight, religion. Obviously, we're here in a very religious and contentious corner of the world. Three Abrahamic legacies. You're reminded of it throughout the day by religious artifacts, calls to prayer, and every Shabbat when things shut down on Friday for Muslims and Friday evening and Saturday for Jews. Upstate, there are a high number of churches per capita, but it's not always clear where the divide is between the religious and the secular. Here, the split is pretty blatant by how people dress, by separation in their schools, and even where people live. Like in the U.S., there are also flavors of observance and orthodoxy in between the extremes. 
They're highly religious communities throughout the country, especially in and near Jerusalem. Tel Aviv seems utterly secular, with plenty of restaurants open on Shabbat and even talk of running the buses on Saturdays. Just this week on Sunday, we took the high-speed train into Jerusalem again. At the train station, there were oddly no taxis. Frustrated, we started to walk towards our dinner destination and stumbled right into the heart of the reason. A massive protest of the ultra-Orthodox had shut down transit. Hundreds of men in black hats and coats protesting the arrest of someone in their community who refused the compulsory draft. Police on horses tried to disperse the crowds, and Brian and I cleared it before the water cannons came out. After a very hip dinner near the main market, we went to bed early to get up at six for Women of the Wall, which is a monthly reading of the Torah at the Wailing Wall by women, which was holy, inspiring, and quite feminist. The sight of highly religious men on one side reading from the Torah and dancing, and then women on the other side doing the same exact thing with all that tension that comes from being within Jerusalem was really something. One thing that seems very consistent, regardless of religious fervor, is recognizing Shabbat, the Sabbath. Basically, friends and family come together and have a meal on a weekly basis. And since the country is small, like the size of New Jersey, kids can come home to their parents, or like we did, go to a meal at our friend's grandmother's on Saturday. There, our friend's grandma, who came from Iraq in 1947, made a table full of traditional dishes and sent us all home with leftovers and Tupperware. I don't know the propensity of religion in upstate farmers, but from what I can see running you know, a farm on either side of us at home, people definitely do family meals for sure, but I think it's rare for anyone on a farm to take a week you know, or a day off. Brian and I usually recognize the Sabbath on Friday nights in some way, and I think this experience only reinforced how charming and meaningful that can be. Number nine, the past and the present. The last observation I have this episode is around time. I mean, nowhere like the Middle East does the past and present rub up against each other. You're walking around in your Patagonia with your iPhone on places from the Bible with stories real and raw from every century since then. I think I started to get on Brian's nerves that as we drive around the country and based on every highway sign for a town we'd pass, I'd go to Wikipedia and get the skinny on the town's history. Modin is where the Maccabee story was. Beersheba means for seven wells, which is how many lambs Abraham paid as part of the covenant to live there with his family. I mean, even Hebrew is a resurrected language brought back to life with modern twists. The Hudson Valley is a microcosm of this present and past concept, I believe, with strong influences and memories of the American revolutionary history all around us. Some are explicit, some are less so, but they're all needing to be remembered. But the Rhine, in Rhinebeck, we're talking about, you know, just the 16 and 1700s AD. Of course, you know, here, it's those in addition to the 1600s BC. While much of the world points its way towards sacred spots in the Middle East, or to even brace itself for bad news from countries in conflict here, I'm actually staring right now in the opposite direction, west, across the Mediterranean. Thinking of the peaceful Hudson River, our community back home, the surrounding farms, and of course our little Nora, who I've missed all month. Special thanks to Andrea, Alex, Bella, and Rachel for looking after her. To my mom, Liz, and Lisa for visiting us in person. And to all of you for tuning in now. Please rate Cityit in the Apple Podcast Store. It helps people find us. And on Instagram, you can just follow cityit.hv. I'm Matt Zucker, and I'll be back with more of Season 3. Come visit. <laughs>